We are working our way through the famous last words of God recorded in Revelation, the last book in the Bible. The name of this book comes from the very first verse in the book of Revelation. Here's what we read in Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things, the things that must soon, which must soon take place. So what is it then that this book is revealing? What does it say? It says, well, these are, it's revealing the things which must soon take place. But as you read the book, you find yourself wondering, well, when did these things take place? I mean, the vision that we read about in this book was shown to John 2,000 years ago. And by any definition of the word soon, most of these things should have happened by now. But when is it that uh, anyone has seen Jesus appear like he's described in chapter 1 and walk among the churches like it's described in chapter 2 and 3 of this book? Well, there's no record of this happening in our history books. And when did the four horsemen of the apocalypse appear on the scene as described in chapter 6? I mean, this is described as a world-dominating event. Certainly, there'd be some historical evidence of this happening. And what about the trumpet-proclaimed plagues of chapter 8? I mean, they're described in devastating detail, but we have no record of them ever occurring. And when is it that the beasts arrived on the earth and gave his followers the mark 666, like it says in chapter 13, like we looked at last week? I mean, he's described as a, a worldwide power. So why then don't we know who this beast is? Well, for the better part of 2,000 years, the church knew why in answer to all of these questions. They understood that these visions represented the themes that have animated all of human history. They knew that Revelation is a book of poetry, and it is a visual, poetic look at the themes of history from the perspective of heaven. So if you want to know what's going to happen in the coming year, pick a chapter, pretty much any chapter. There will be, I predict, war in 2019. Why do I know that? Well, I could look at history and predict it, but I could also read the book of Revelation because the red horseman of evil is going to see to the wars just continuing. There's going to be hunger next year. The black horseman of need is going to see to that. And on and on it goes. The themes that we've been talking about are reoccurring themes throughout human history. But we don't want, we, we don't want to just know the themes. We want to know more about the future than just the themes. We want names and we want dates. And so a relatively new approach to this book has become popular over the last hundred years. And that is the practice of attaching names and dates to every detail in this book. Now, the names keep changing because the owners of those names keep dying. And the dates keep getting pushed back as the predictions keep failing. But verse 1 of Revelation is very clear about this book. These things must soon take place, and they have. Everything that we have considered so far in this book has occurred and will continue to occur. These are the reoccurring themes. They have happened, and they will happen again. But in chapter 15 of Revelation, a shift takes place. We shift from the things that must soon take place to the things that will take place at the end when God wraps up history. 
It begins with this verse, Revelation 15, verse 1. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them, God's wrath is completed. Now, these are not the first plagues in the book of Revelation. If you've been tracking with us, you've seen a couple of rounds of plagues. These are described as the last plagues. Webster defines a plague as a sudden, unwelcome outbreak. Kind of like what's happened in the fires this week. And we know, living in California, that these, sadly, are probably not going to be the last times people are going to be chased out of their homes. They're going to lose their homes and maybe their lives. And so we've seen this reoccurring theme, even in our state. In chapter 9 of Revelation, we, we saw that a plague is one of the ways that God responds to evil in this world. And like the first plagues that we read about in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, related to Egypt, the purpose of these plagues is not to punish people. The purpose is to to open all of our eyes to the false gods that have deceived us, to give us a chance at seeing things that are not the way we tend to see them, and life is just going great. A sudden, unwelcome outbreak is common. It's a common theme in world history, and honestly, in our own history. But these plagues are different in chapter 15. These will mark the just wrath of God in response to evil. And we are told that with them, the wrath of God will be complete. These these last themes are the final themes. There are three of them. And this theme of judgment is the first of the three themes marking the end. Judgment, salvation, and heaven. These are the last three themes. The seven we've considered before them, those are the reoccurring themes. But now, with the beginning of looking at judgment, we turn to the last three themes that will mark the end. So today, judgment. And we know about judgment because, well, we have a justice system. When wrong is done, a judgment is rendered and justice is served. But every human justice system struggles with two questions that it is very difficult for human justice to answer. And that is because God's final judgment is the only way to provide an answer to these two questions. Question number one is this, how long must I wait? How long must I wait for justice? This is the question that every victim of evil asks. How long must I wait is a question with a long history to it in the world. And that's because this world is not a good place to find justice. Children with their instinctive moral sense notice this early and call it what it is. Not fair. They say over and over and over again. Now, their application may be selfish and their claims may seem petty, but they're right. They have found themselves in a world that is not fair. Nobody gets what they deserve, whether it's rewards or punishments. I mean, the consequences of both vice and virtue tend to not line up with their causes. So we look around us and we see people who are either getting less than they deserve or getting more than we think they should get. And it's the same with us, isn't it? I mean, some moments we are filled with gratitude as we realize, you know, we really are getting more than we deserve. 
And then other moments, we switch to anger because we don't feel like we're getting what we deserve. And we can do all of this in the same hour, back and forth. I mean, I've been cut off in traffic, I don't know how many times. <laughs> hundreds? Thousands of maybe overstretched. Feels like it, but probably hundreds. But only one time in all of my driving history did the person that cut me off get pulled over by a police officer. And I remember it because <gasps> it was like a unicorn. It never happens. <laughs> I mean, he pulled over, he, he cut me off, and then a mile down the road, there he was, pulled off the side of the road with the police officer right behind I almost honked my horn. <laughs> but suddenly I realized you know, I might then be pursued for some, and so I just, I just enjoyed the moment <laughs> as I drove by. But that's the one and only time that happened. And that one time was quickly buried by all of the daily wrongs that go unresponded to. So what happens in this matter for both, most of us is we go through the years and we develop moral calluses both to the wrong that we do and the wrong that others do to us. That's just kind of how we cope. We lose our sensitivity to and our awareness of wrong we do and really the wrong others do to us. But the two-year-old is right, both in content and in energy. Not fair. It's a call for justice, not occasionally, not someday, but now. And this call is not silenced in the pages of Scripture. It's given a voice throughout the pages of Scripture. The how long question comes up again and again. For example, in Psalm 13, verse 1 through 2, we read this, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? How long is this going to go on? These are four how long questions that are full of emotion. You know, how, how long, oh Lord, are, are you just going to forget me? It seems like you're not aware at all of what's going on in my life. How long is this going to go on? The implication is it's gone on far longer than it should. How long, God, are you going to hide your face from the the wrong that's being done to me. I mean, you've got to see what's going on here, but I don't see any response. How much longer, God? How many more days will I have to endure the sorrow that's caused by the way people have and do treat me? How long? How long, God, are you going to let evil, evil people win? Triumph over me. How long is this going to go on? Now, in the book of Revelation, we saw this same question earlier. Revelation 6, verses 9 through 10. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they had maintained. And they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? These are people who've been killed for standing up for God's truth. And now they're asking, so how much longer until justice in our situation is brought to bear? How long? Well, what's the answer? The next verse, verse 11, says this. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait. Oh, there it is, a little longer. 
until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were killed as they had been was completed. That is not a satisfying answer. The first part of the answer is, hey, here's a white robe. We don't want a white robe. We want justice. What's with the white robe? Well, it turns out that when we ask for justice, we're asking it not just for the ones who have wronged us, we're asking it for ourselves as well. Justice swings both ways, and it turns out that we need the white robe if we're going to survive the day of judgment. The white robe is the righteous cover that we are offered in Jesus Christ. This is a theme that's mentioned throughout the pages of the New Testament. And if you're going to cry out for justice, God says, here, first of all, you better put this robe on. You don't want to show up to the great day of judgment naked with nothing but your deeds. You're going to need this white robe, the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. You're going to want that to cover you up. That's the first part of the answer. The second part of the answer is you're just going to have to wait a little longer. Why? The reason is because the number of those who have been killed for their faith is not complete yet. What does that mean? There's some kind of quota? There's a certain number of people that are going to be martyred for the faith? Yes, that's what it means. And this fits in with a theme that you see throughout the pages of the Bible. The Bible compares God's judgment to a cup that must first be filled before it is drunk. And if the cup is only a quarter full or half full or three quarters full, it's not time for judgment yet. It's only when it's full. Jeremiah 25, 15 says, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I have sent, sent you drink it. This is a theme you see throughout the pages of the Bible. And this is what Jesus meant when hours before he gave up his sinless life in exchange for our sinful lives, he said this as he was wrestling with what he was going to have to pay, the price he was going to have to pay on the cross. This is what he says in Matthew 26, 42. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this what? Cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. He's referring to the cup of God's wrath. And what he's saying is this is going to be a bitter cup. And final judgment means you don't just sip from this cup. It must be drunk down to the very dregs, down to the, the bitter bottom. Now, we don't know how big the cup is or how many sins it takes to fill it, but eventually it is full. And it must be drunk. And it would be drunk either by us for our own sins, our own wrong, or it would be drunk on our behalf by Jesus Christ. It's the only way the cup's going to be drained. So what are we to do while we are waiting in our white robes for the cup of God's wrath to be filled to the brim? Well, the long-awaited judgment of God in Revelation 15 through 18 is preceded, it's begun in chapter 15 by a song an interesting way to open up judgment. It's a song of worship. Actually, it's a remix of the song of Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 32. We pick it up in verse 3 of Revelation 15. And sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Here's the song. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy, 
All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. What's the point? The point is this. While we are waiting, while we are saying how long, God says, get on your white robes and worship. True worship is the answer that we are given to the how long question. It's not the answer we're looking for. The answer we're looking for is, okay, now. But it's the answer we are given. True worship. While you're waiting, worship. Worship helps us see beyond the current injustice that we're facing. Now, again, if you've been following along with us, this is not the first time that we've been told to worship in the book of Revelation. This comes up again and again. In fact, Revelation makes it pretty clear that worship is is the essential and central act of the Christian. We are to worship again and again. It's because in worship, we bow before the one who is at the very center, the one who is on the throne, the one who is in charge. And we remember while we worship, as it says here, the marvelous deeds of God. And we need to remember these because when we've been treated wrongly, all we can remember are the horrible deeds that others have done to us. We forget the marvelous deeds that God has done, either in our life or throughout history. Worship centers us and reminds us more is going on than just the injustice you're facing. And we remind ourselves that God is just and true. What that means is that what we see right now is not the way it's always going to be. And then in worship, we refuse to be intimidated and afraid of the current form of evil that we're facing. And we remember that the only one worthy of that level of respect, that level of worship and fear is God himself. And so we fear him. And it's as we gather regularly to worship that we are prepared to answer the second big question of judgment. And that is, that's this question, how wrong must I be? The first question is asked by the victims of evil. The second question is asked by the perpetrators of evil. Another way to say this question is, what are the chances of me getting caught? And where is that line that I can get right up to and not be caught? How wrong do I have to be to face judgment, to face justice? Now, we want justice for those who have wronged us, but not so much for the wrong that we've done. And so after the song of worship, seven angels step forward to pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth, the final judgment. And as they empty these bowls of wrath, we see the consequences. And we realize we've seen these seven before. As before in the book of Revelation, these seven are elements of the ten plagues against Egypt. They are featured again, just like they were in the seven trumpet plagues of chapter 8. But this time, it ends differently. Here's what it says in Revelation 16, 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. Judgment is now done. It's complete. Where have we heard this kind of phrase uttered before? Does it ring a bell? Yeah, in John 19.30, Jesus said, as he took his last breath on the cross, it is finished. It's done. With that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. You see, judgment, God's judgment, justice, 
will only ever be finished in one of two ways. All of the bowls of God's wrath are poured out on all who have done evil, and we are part of that. Or Jesus will take it. It is finished in his name or in our name. So how bad then do you have to be to deserve this kind of wrath, to deserve the wrath of God? Now we understand the need for extreme measures like the seven bowls of wrath for the extremely bad people. And our justice system does its best to capture, convict, and incarcerate the truly bad. But even when human justice gets it right and the guilty have to pay for their crimes, we know that even that, it's, it's never finished. Justice is never over. I mean, no family robbed of a loved one ever feels satisfied. They could never honestly utter the word, you know what, because of the trial and because this person got life imprisonment, or even if this person was sentenced to death, I've never heard anyone say, you know what, for us, it's finished now. It's done. No, it's never done. Human justice can't bring that end about. But what about us? You know, the average perpetrator of evil who peddles in small lies and selfishness. Where's the line on the list of sins that identifies what deserves seven bowls of judgment? I mean, how, how bad do we have to be? We understand for the truly bad, okay. But what about just normal bad people like us? Where's the line? Well, instead of a list, we're given a vision of what it is that deserves the judgment of God. And this vision is through chapter 17 and 18 of Revelation. I encourage you to read it. It's a vision of the great prostitute. A very surprising vision. Here's what we read in the beginning of chapter 17, verses 1 through 2. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her the kings of the earth commit adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Now, why does God single out prostitution and adultery as the representative image of what it is that deserves the full measure of his seven bowls of wrath judgment? I mean, are these the, the worst of all the sins? If you were to list all of the sins, are, are these one and two? No, not necessarily. But it's these two that represent what's at the heart of every sin. That's why they represent what deserves God's judgment. You see, in the pages of the Bible, marriage is the primary metaphor. It's the primary analogy that God uses to describe the nature, the essence of our relationship with Him. And that's because just as marriage is an exclusive relationship, our relationship to God is an exclusive relationship. You know, when I married my wife over 33 years ago, I became a married man, and that changed a lot. That changed many things in my life. One of the first things that changed was my dating life. It ended that. And I was grateful. I never, dating was not, I was not a fan of dating. But it ended my dating life. That's because married people don't date. They don't even flirt. 
If they do, there's a good chance it's going to end their marriage. This is why prostitution and marriage are not compatible. They're not compatible. What prostitution does is it monetizes sex. It takes the physical act of sex and connects it to money. It makes it something that you can pay for. The physical union of the sexes is now given a price tag. And when the act of sex has been paid for and is done, well, the relationship is over until it's paid for again. And this monetizing of sex is a lie about love. It it degrades what love really is. Love is a gift that's to be given. It can't ever be paid for. It's a commitment that, as our vows of marriage, the traditional vows say, endures for better or for worse in sickness and in health and for richer or for poor. And the lie of prostitution is that any of this can be purchased. I mean, you can pay for sex, but you can't pay for love. Every married person knows this about love and sex. Probably most single people know this. They know that sex is the physical expression of their love for and commitment to each other. And that can't be separated. You can't truly love someone and form a marriage commitment with them and then go off and pay for sex. Those are incompatible. And that's why when adultery violates a marriage relationship, the spouse that's been cheated on never takes it in stride. Because the relationship, the fundamental nature of the exclusive relationship has been violated. And they are filled with what? Justified wrath. They rightly demand that the adultery end. And if it doesn't end, and sometimes even if it does, the relationship is over. No one questions the anger of the spouse who's been cheated on. Because given the exclusive nature of marriage, the anger and the break in the relationship is understandable. It's completely justified. But you see, God views sin the same way a married person views prostitution. It violates the exclusive nature of our relationship with him. You see, just as prostitution monetizes sex, what sin does is it monetizes worship. We are to have an exclusive relationship with God where we worship him. But what sin does is it puts something other than God at the center of our life in exchange for the cheap thrills of our own immediate gratification. This is one of the reasons why Jesus said, you know, you can't love God and love money. You're going to have to pick a lover. He used the word love because, well, that's what worship really is. It's the decision to put something at the center of your life, to love it. And every sin is the decision to cheat on God with another lover. That's what it is. To worship something other than God in exchange monetize it, something I can pay for, exchange for what I want now. 
And so the justified wrath that every spouse who has ever been cheated on feels is just a drop in the bucket of God's justified judgment on our sin. Because it turns out we have not just made a few mistakes, as we often call sin, or broken just a few rules that we think were a little too strict anyways. No, we, we have been unfaithful to our God. And so the answer to the how wrong must I be question is false worship. That's the answer that we're given to the how wrong question. There is no list of sins to look at to see if we've committed the really bad ones and are now worthy of God's judgment. There is no number, there's no quota of sins that push God past his limit and bring judgment. There is a cup that must be filled, but even the first sin in the bottom of that cup is worthy of judgment. Why is that? It's very important we understand this because we tend to think that when it comes to God's judgment, he's just a little bit hot-headed. I mean, he must be overreacting. I mean, we're just normal people trying to do the best we can. What's this great judgment thing about? We don't understand the nature of the relationship or what we've done. I mean, ask the married person, how many affairs would they be okay with? And with who would they tolerate adultery? And you'd have your answer, zero and no one, right? Ask God, how many sins? What's the, what's the limit? Same answer, zero. Well, which sins? Which, which lovers would you accept? Same answer, no one. We look out on a world full of sin, and we feel some level of comfort because everybody's doing it. But in Revelation 17 and 18, we are shown what this world looks like from the perspective of heaven. And it's not just individuals out having an occasional affair with a false god. It's, it's the image of a prostitute riding on the beast that we met last week. The beast, remember, is the driving force behind the history of political power in this world. Here's what we read in verse 5 of Revelation 17. This title was written on her forehead, the prostitute forehead who's writing this beast. Here's the title. Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. What does this mean? Well, Babylon was known to be the greatest center of culture and commerce at the time. Today, if this vision was shown now, it might be New York. It might be L.A., maybe Paris. I don't know. But the point that's being made is that the sin, the spirit of prostitution, always shows up institutionalized. It, it shows up in cities. Entire cities do this. You see, it's not just, sin is not just what people sneak off to do. Now, they do do that. But sin is what entire cities do. It's what entire cultures do. It's what this entire world does. And so to us, that's why it just doesn't seem that bad. Because if we could see Babylon in its zenith, we would be amazed and impressed. But from the perspective of heaven, it's the title on the prostitute's forehead riding the beast of political power advancing the spirit of prostitution in this world. 
And so in chapter 18, we read this about what will happen to Babylon in the final judgment. Revelation 18, verse 19 says, Woe, woe, O great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour, she has been brought to ruin. In one hour, it's all gone. One hour. That's all it took. One hour. It's gone. As I saw the video that my pastor friend in Chico showed me from this ride along with the sheriff, they just went through the town of paradise, and it's, it's gone in about three hours. It, it just was gone. I mean, cars alongside the road, just shells, gone. Everything's gone. This is what God's judgment will be like. In one hour, gone. Salvation by checkbook. You know, those who have gone to their checkbook again and again and again to save them, gone. No checkbook, no bank account, just gone. Meaning by money, <laughs> gone. I mean, these ships, which was the means of commerce by which the world had become enriched, the source of the riches, gone in one hour. Promoting ourselves to be our own God, gone. All that's left is you and me before one God. Now, if you're getting concerned about God's judgment, you have understood these chapters rightly. Our world is not concerned. The great powers of this world are not concerned because they've got cover. Everyone's doing this. We've all prostituted ourselves with many lovers other than God. And he is right to be full of wrath and to demand our eternal separation from him. He's not just a teacher grading on a curve. He's more like a husband responding to a series of affairs. So people tend to think that God's judgment is overreacting. But the truth is, in the song that we sang earlier, God is slow to anger. It is just amazing how patient he's been. But don't mistake his slowness to anger and his patience for the fact that we're going to get away with all of this. Now, if we understand our situation as it really is, and not as everybody thinks it is. Again, revelation is a view from heaven. If we see it as it really is, then we're going to be ready to hear the good news that we are told in Revelation 19 and 20. So come back next week for the last word on salvation. Next week is the pinnacle. It's the mountaintop of the entire book. Let's pray. Father, as we read your words, they cut through all the layers of our defenses, through all the cover of comparing ourselves to everybody else, and they leave us morally naked before you. 
with no cover. We thank you for the robe that we're going to look at next week, the white robe. Because without it, you are completely justified in sending us away forever. Father, we pray for Chico Community Church as they reach out to the, that community in need. And God, we just pray that as the plague of that fire has dislodged so many people, that you would use that great tragedy to open up our eyes and their eyes to what really matters. We thank you for giving us your perspective. Help us to live this next week in light of this truth. And we pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.